0: For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? for Christ also suffered once for our sins and the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared
1: Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the time to study your word. We come now to the point in particular where we need you to speak specifically through your word to us, especially in light of a text that is calling us to suffer if necessary for righteousness' sake. And that when reviled, we wouldn't revile. And and knows they're navigating a hostile world, and so I've put the passage in a sentence for you at the top of your notes. You should have received those when you came in. And that passage in the sentence just says this, As sojourners, when we are called to suffer for righteousness' sake, let us do so fearlessly and faithfully, knowing we will be sustained and vindicated by Jesus, who is risen and reigning. So if we are called to suffer for Jesus' sake, even in Tupelo, Mississippi, because it happens. Sometimes you may not get that promotion because you were faithful to Jesus. Students, you may not win homecoming queen because you were faithful to Jesus. Jesus. And there is persecution that can happen in Tupelo. But whenever we are called to suffer for righteousness sake, let us do so fearlessly and faithfully, knowing whatever cost, it will always be worth it. Because Christ has been vindicated, and in him we will be vindicated as well. Don't ever bail out of the suffering don't ever think that it's costing you now more than it'll be worth one day that's never true it will always be worth more to suffer for the cause of Christ if that's what is required and so in this text the phrase that you're called to you're called to is repeated and so i want to spend some time to see what are we called to and there are at least five aspects that we're called to in this text. The first one is that we are called as believers to live harmoniously with one another, with others that we are called to live in unity together. Here's what he says in verse eight. Finally, all of you. He comes to all of you because he's been speaking in different groups, those that would be subject to their masters, wives as you interact with husbands, husbands as you interact with wives. And now he says, finally, all of you together, this is a word for all of you, he says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So inside here, we're to be together. So when the world comes against us, the hope would be that we come together. And if there are wrongs committed, that it's done more by those outside of us than inside of us. Then inside our faith family, we're working for the good of each other. And so to live harmoniously together, there's a couple things that will help that. First of all, pursue unity And then the last one, humility of mind. Pursue unity and humility of mind. Did you know that unity is a byproduct of growing in and going with the gospel? We do best to grow in unity when we are aiming at the gospel, not aiming at unity. Unity is a byproduct as we grow in the word. Matter of fact, John writes and says that we have fellowship with one another as we walk in the Lord's commands. And so sometimes you and I lack fellowship with one another because one of us lacks obedience. All right? So he says, be united in mind. Demolish divisions, that we wouldn't do a single thing that would threaten divisions in our midst, that we would offer rapid reconciliation so that if we have wronged someone, we would seek it quickly, or if we have been wronged, we won't stew on it like whatever's in the crock pots out there while we're in here today, that we won't stew and let it just simmer and come to a boil, that we will offer reconciliation quick. We cannot image the Lord clearer than when we offer reconciliation to those who've wounded us instead of waiting for them to come and seek it themselves, that we initiate that. You show me a faith family that works against divisions and works quickly toward reconciliation, I'll show you a faith family that's living harmoniously together, that they're united. And unity does not mean uniformity. We don't all have to like all the same things. Some of us like football teams that are better than other teams, right? Some of us like football teams that are evil empires, Matt Wilburn. Some of us, you know, we we don't have to all have uniformity that we all look the same. Matter of fact, God has gifted us with different gifts to promote dependence to say we need each other we need each other so unity does not mean uniformity we don't have to all believe the same things even about the end times pre-mid posts you know we don't what we can be certain on is Christ reigns and Christ is returning and so it's unity but not uniformity and then humility what works most towards uh, uh, unity is a humility of mind that we consider the needs of everyone else in the faith family more important than our own. That we don't think of ourselves, well, I'm the most important person in this faith family, or of course this faith family needs me, I'm awesome. Those things will work against unity. And humility of mind comes most, not when you compare yourself to other believers, but when you compare yourself to Christ. Humility is never a problem when you consider Christ. And what we always want to be amazed is that Christ would even consider us humility is not a problem when we know who we are and we know who he is and so pursue that if there are ways that you are working against unity in this body I call you to repent today working if you're working in sowing division I call you to repent of that and move toward unity if there are ways that you think you're awesome and this faith family is lucky to have you I would call you to repent the only one indispensable in this faith family is Jesus Jesus is indispensable all the rest of us are stewards for a short time together have sympathy then. Here's what another has said. Sympathy is feeling what others feel so that you can respond with sensitivity to the need. I loved what he wrote. People who have true sympathy generally do not say, I know how you feel. Because they, since I know how you feel, they also know how unhelpful it is to hear someone say, I know how you feel. So true sympathy is fairly quiet, time-intensive, present-intensive way of being. It's living with compassion toward one another. Matt Mason, pastor at... Uh, Brook Hills tweeted several weeks ago, if church membership doesn't find you throwing your shoulder under someone else's burden, you're not doing it right. So as a faith family, we: when one hurts, we all hurt. When one weeps, we all weep. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. This is what it means to to have sympathy for one another, and then that we would love affectionately and tenderly. You see, God does something to make us more than just people who sit in the same chairs on the Sunday morning in the same room, but to make us family, to make us brothers and sisters. And though some of us have grown up in dysfunctional families, God's family is not to be dysfunctional. Brothers are to work for the good of other brothers. Sisters are to work for the good of other sisters. Those that would be mothers and fathers to us, being mothers and fathers for our good, and not just their they're good, and that there will be loving affection. Matter of fact, our actions for one another should be driven because of our affections for one another, that we gladly sacrifice because we love you. We love you. We joyfully put your needs above our own, and the reason why we, we need to be all of these things is because that's not how the world is, and that's not how the rest of the text plays out. And he's going to talk more in chapter 4 about what the faith family looks like. But before he moves on to the hostilities, he just takes a moment and says, for those of you that are that are inside, those of you who are believers, that you would live harmoniously by pursuing that unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and tender heart and humble mind. It may be that way, brutal, out in the world, but it's not going to be that way in, in our walls and in our midst and in our People, This is what we do to strive toward one another. And we will need each other because as we move to verse 9, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And we're going to need each other because that's not how we're going to respond. We're going to want to respond in a way that repays evil, all of evil and raises you some, right? Oh, you did this to me. Well, you see what I do to your front yard, buddy. Watch as I drive donuts and do them right there on the lawn if I don't put my truck through the wall of your house. So we we want to ramp it up and we need each other to help each other. I read this week about Willie Jenkins who was a minister in Pearl, Mississippi in the 1960s and Willie as other African-American ministers worked for the cause of seeing people come together but his neighborhood was terrorized often by white teenagers who would drive through and firebomb houses. They would throw out the, the little cocktails and, and light cars on fire. On one particular night, Willie and his sons could hear what was going on, just a street or two over, so they went out in their front yard to protect their property. As Providence would have it, the white teenagers that were wreaking havoc ran out of gas right in front of Willie's house. And his boys looked to see what Willie was going to do, And the white teenagers looked with faces full of fear. Willie picked up one of the bottles. He just shattered it on the ground. Then he walked over to his car and grabbed what he needed and began to siphon gas from his car. And then he walked over to the vehicle, which the boys hadn't gotten out of the car, by the way. I guess you're only tough if you're throwing things out of it. And Willie put his own gas in their vehicle instead of beating them Willie blessed them instead of fighting them he fueled their car and instead of treating them as they deserved his actions were distinctly different and I assure you his boys never forgot that moment where dad didn't wreak havoc on them in the street or seek revenge but to bless the very ones who'd wreaked havoc on your neighborhood and your home over and over and over our problem is we are born with payback in our hearts. How do I know that? I have four kids. I have never once seen one of my children when one child wrongs the other say, oh, let me bless you. You slap my face, let me pray a blessing over you. You took my toy, it's okay. I love sharing delightfully. So I know that we have revenge as soon as we're in those little clear bins in the nursery of the hospitals. And our only hope for that changing is Jesus. The only way that we won't repay evil with evil or revile when reviled is Jesus, which is why the gospel of Christ transforms the way we view and treat the people who harm us most. The gospel demands that I not treat my enemies as they deserve to be treated. Rather, I treat them as Christ has treated me. When you, instead of reviling, as it says in verse 9, but when you genuinely, you really actually pray and speak for the good of the ones who are wounding you most. That'll cause some questions to be asked, to which the answer is Jesus and Jesus alone. He's the only one who could help us. And I'll tell you how bad it is. Even, even though night we're trying to, soccer again has been for my sanctification this fall trying to get all the team pictures together and, and not wanting to yield spaces so that we're trying to warm up for a game and every team is trying to take their pictures and, and this team wants us instead said shooting goals in net, they're like could you stop and move over so we can take our picture I was like we're warming up for our game to which a mother was not real pleased with my response and she began to say some things to which I as a pastor then said I love you i pray for you I didn't say that. Mitchell knows because he was there. But I did tell him that I was from the orchard. So I hope that it will. <laughs> I hope it will turn out well for them. It will be a blessing. But by Christ and Christ alone. We are called to display mercy. And that's evident when we don't repay evil for evil. and We don't revile when reviled. But instead we bless. And all of that and don't miss it's not like this is optional he says to this you were called this is normal christianity not not an asterisk not just for the green berets who really get it we're all called to do this that when people tear us down we don't tear them down when when people wound us we don't wound them and all that there's your purpose clause that you may obtain a blessing in essence that the word obtained there inherit he's talked about this inheritance in first peter But all that, in essence here, because we have a blessing. We have been blessed. And so we bless instead of bruise. And then what Peter wants to do is to to build a solid foundation to you to say, this isn't new thinking. So he goes to Psalms and he gives you an explanatory for at the beginning of verse 10. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep, Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we need to live harmoniously together because in that we're going to help each other respond graciously and because we're called to walk distinctively that's the third truth from this text to walk distinctively in this world and Peter says this this idea of doing good to people who do you that's not new David was writing about it a long time ago and one of the ways that it's seen there is the same by by what you say let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit as believers Paul will say in Colossians 4 let your conversation be full of grace as believers we should be the most gracious people in our conversations not harsh not rude not irritable but grace flowing out of us now that only occurs if we've considered the gospel that morning if we've gone to the lord and been filled with the spirit ephesians 4:29, verse 30 a, a verse that we come back to especially 429 often in our home let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The the closest locator of what may grieve the Holy Spirit is what we say with our words. And so that we would say what's appropriate, what is gracious, what builds people up. And the psalmist has been saying this for a long time, that if we're going to be different, then we keep our tongue from evil. We don't gossip. We don't tear people down. We keep our lips from speaking deceit. We speak truth even if it costs us. We speak truth even if it's painful. And then that we walk that out. He says that we would turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So we walk distinctively by how we, uh, we, by how we talk. And then it shows itself in our walk that I wonder if we're those that are putting away evil or we're putting up with it. That we're tolerating it. Are we pursuing peace with others? Or are we causing problems? I hope if you're causing problems, it's because you're standing up for righteousness sake, not because you're standing up for your own kingdom, for your own selfishness. Are we pursuing peace? And so he, he says, look, those who want to love life and see good days, this is what it looks like. You need to know good days are marked more by obedience than disobedience. And good days, there's joy and peace because of obedience. Turning from evil, not turning to it, and then because the Lord's eyes are on us it doesn't mean here as if he's watching us like someone who makes a list and checks it twice finding out who's naughty or nice he doesn't mean that when he he says the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous he means he's he cares for he's he sees and he says his ears are open to their prayer and one of the best prayers is God help me not to respond evil with evil he is certainly open to that prayer and then The motivation being that last phrase in verse 12, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We cannot continuously pursue disobedience and then be surprised when all is not well in our lives. John Stott always said that it's amazing those who sow to the flesh all day long and wonder why they don't reap a harvest of righteousness. God will not be mocked. And so graciously, God disciplines us for our disobedience rather than destroying us. And he disciplines us for the purpose of repentance and reconciliation rather than ruin. It would help our sanctification each day if we would just consider that last phrase, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do I want to choose this Then, The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Ah, I'm going to let it pass. I'm going to let it pass. And so Peter says, look. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to be together in here, and when we scatter out to the world, we're not going to respond in a worldly way. We're going to respond in the way of the word, that they can see Jesus. And he says, that's what God's been saying all along, that we turn from evil and we do good. We walk distinctively. There's something about you. I recognize that. Where have I seen that? Jesus. That's where I've seen that. That people don't have to guess. Now, one of the ways that that can be seen clearly is when we're called to suffer Fearlessly, for righteousness sake. Look in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? He's asking a rhetorical question because basically he's saying, if you do the right thing, who's going to harm you? We all know that sometimes we've done the right thing and still suffer from it. How many of you have done the right thing and at least suffered once or twice for it, right? Uh, no, No good deed goes unpunished, right? And so what he goes on to say, that generally obviously if we do good we don't have to worry about being harmed if you're if you're going 54 in a 55 you really don't have to worry about getting a ticket right and so generally you don't have to worry about harm but he says it begins in verse 14 but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what you would think is, all right, if I don't repay evil with evil, but I bless them, then immediately they're going to love you, right? So what he's trying to prepare you is you may not revile and you may bless And you may still suffer for both of those things. And so he says, if you do, you're blessed. The pathway of blessing. Now, how many of you, when you pray for a blessing, you're like, and Lord, I just bless us today, Lord. And if it could, could it come through absolute painful suffering? That's the path of blessing for me, Lord, right? I don't pray that in the morning, so I just assure you. uh, I would not pray wanting those, and yet... Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. And so, so what Peter says is, Look, this is what we're called to do. And even if you suffer for it, there's blessing that comes for that. Keep doing the right thing keep living Jesus and in order for you to do that verse 15 says in your hearts you must honor Christ the Lord so what we have to do is honor him as holy we have to acknowledge he reigns he's most important nothing happens outside of his loving lordship and then Jesus himself says in Matthew 10 and then Luke 12 do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell I tell you my friends do not fear those who kill the body and after that they have nothing more that they can do but I will warn you whom to fear fear him who after he's killed has authority to cast into hell, hell yes I tell you fear him What what Peter is saying is they may wound you and they may take your life but they can never take your soul and when you have a What happens is when we experience suffering, we tend to want to shrink back. We tend to not be very vocal about our Christian beliefs because we don't want to pay the price. And he says, what you have to do above all is set Christ as Lord. You know that He is sovereign, that He reigns. And there is a fear that's more important than all other fears, that we fear Him rightly, Don't fear the ones that can take your life. That's the worst they can do to you, right? The greater fear is the one that after you're dead, he can pour out wrath incessantly for all eternity. That's the greater fear, which is why we flee to Christ, right? That's the worst thing that could happen to us. The guy who's threatened you to fire you if you stand up for Jesus, that is not the worst thing that can happen to you. You don't get student council president because you didn't go to the party and get drunk with everybody else. That is not the worst thing that can happen to you. We set Christ as Lord. And so because of that then, we're always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. So once we set him as Lord, therefore what we want to do is we want to share the gospel continuously. We always want to be ready to share the gospel. Let me just ask a pop quiz. How many of you go out your door every day with the hope and readiness to share the gospel that you go out on mission so we may go to school we may go to our job we may go to other responsibilities that we have what we want to do is go out in readiness lord use me for the sake of the gospel however help me be ready to give to talk about and to know the gospel and to know why i believe the gospel that there's a readiness an urgency because we've been considering the gospel and so now we're ready to speak for the gospel And then when we do, he says this, that you do it with gentleness and respect at the end of verse 15. So we do want to share the gospel continuously and boldly, but also gently and reverently. As believers, we're full of hope, not harshness. I told you Jesus reigns. Amen. Could I give my life to Jesus now? Yes. You know, Uh, there's a harshness that should be evident. That's That's why Paul writes, our conversations should be full of grace. If our conversations are not full of grace, you know why they're not? It's because our hearts are not full of grace. Because our conversations are full of whatever our hearts are full of. And so if we're as harsh as the world, we've lost sight of the hope to which we've been called. So he says, look, if you suffer for doing what's right, there's blessing that comes from that. So don't be afraid. Christ is Lord. Speak clearly and often about this hope that you have and do it with gentleness and respect and reverence. Do it in a way, a way that they will be drawn to Christ. And then he tells you, again, verse 17, he explains, he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So even... At the end of verse 16, if you're slandered, the hope is that those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. There's some of us who would have the mindset, it's better not to suffer. Because we want a Christianity that is safe and easy and comfortable. We want one where we don't rock too many boats or deal with too many waves. And that is not the Christianity to which you have been called. He says, so if you suffer for doing good it's better if you've done the right thing it is better why why is it better which gets us to the last truth of this not only are we to walk distinctively and suffer fearlessly the way that we can do the previous four are because we trust completely verses 18 through 22 are some of the most difficult verses in the new testament 18 is really really clear and the overall message is really clear just the way that peter has written it is pretty unique but what we trust completely is that Christ has been vindicated and here's what it says in verse 18 for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit have you ever had a teacher or a coach or even a parent who called you to do some things that they weren't willing to do themselves maybe you had a boss that Makes you do some things, but they haven't demonstrated their willingness to do some of those things. Here's what I love about God God never asks us to do anything that Christ hasn't already demonstrated for us. No matter how much you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will never suffer more than Christ did. And so, as we're called to follow, here's where He, he lays this foundation and say, So, have you called to suffer in this world? Well, so did Jesus. <laughs> And so the call to suffer for righteousness sake is not a cruel joke that in the end you will have just wasted your time and energy. That's what we want to know. All right, so if I do this and I don't revile back and I'm, and I'm kind and I, I pray and work for the good of those who wound me most. In the end, is it going to be a cruel joke? And, and as Paul says, we should have been pitied above all. And what Peter goes on to say is, no, it's not a cruel joke because Christ has suffered so we can know that it's worth what it costs us because Christ the righteous one suffered for the sake of the unrighteous I want us to to consider just a couple words just as we walk through 18 think just for a moment because you the gospel is no stranger in this place we know that every week we have a goal that we pray the gospel we sing the gospel we preach the gospel and because of that you and I can sometimes become desensitized to the gospel that oh yeah here's what God did for us in Jesus oh yeah I've heard it yeah and if that's where our hearts are we want to pray this morning God break our hearts afresh for the gospel because we should not easily move past a phrase that says Christ also suffered Christ also suffered being that he is the Christ, being that he is the Son of God, being that he is very God himself, his suffering was a choice. And the suffering occurred as he came for the sake of the unrighteous. We often consider the suffering, obviously the physical suffering, but but the mocking and and for over 30 years of never yielding into temptation once that there was suffering that was involved but, but don't miss this, the righteous for the unrighteous, here's what I'm afraid uh, we prayed, I prayed in, in our elder prayer before I think sometimes we are willing to gladly serve people we think deserve it that is not who Jesus gladly served he was the righteous for the unrighteous if you are only serving people you think deserve it, it's going to be difficult to image Jesus because Christ suffered, he didn't just serve, but in the serving was suffering, and he was the righteous for the unrighteous, with the whole purpose that he might bring us to God. The whole idea of having access to God, which is just why we say music doesn't bring us to God, preaching doesn't bring us to God, Jesus and Jesus alone brings us to God. Jesus is our one mediator. And so even his persecution was with a purpose, or more rightly, his, propi- his propitiation was with a purpose of taking that wrath that we might be brought to God. Let me just drop this on you. It should be a wonder to you that God would want us brought to him. And if that's not a wonder to you, then, then his holiness may be too small in your journey and your, your, your sinfulness may not be big enough that God would want us brought to him and did so at great cost to himself. So may we, while we're being challenged, live Jesus in a hostile world. May we not lose sight that Jesus suffered for you to even have that opportunity. And he suffered for you when you were unrighteous, not righteous. And he did so to bring you to God because even though we went away from him, God comes in the depth of our wretchedness to bring us back to himself. The height of the gospel is not that we get heaven. The height of the gospel is that we get God. God is the point of the gospel. And Jesus served so much so that the very next phrase says, being put to death. So if your serving and suffering hasn't cost you your life yet, you certainly haven't served or suffered to the point that Christ did, Suffering all the way to the point of death. So Christ, the righteous one, suffered for the sake of the unrighteous. But what we know is that Christ was vindicated. And here's where this text begins to get fun that Jesus was made alive in the Spirit. And here's what it says in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water now pretending that you and i have not read first peter before i mean that's exactly where you would think peter would go with this right this is the next phase you're like you know like when jesus came alive he was put to death but then he was alive and he preached sort of you know noah of all people that you were, you were going to pick but he has a, a point and a reason for what he does there. There are three main views to what's going on. So when was Jesus alive? Let me tell you one of the views that's not correct. All of those that would say that Jesus goes to hell and he is tortured by demons, that is not biblical. No debt was owed to demons. The debt of our sin was owed to God the Father, not to, not to hell and to demons in that sense. But there are, there are three main views. And here they are first one is that after christ's death and before his resurrection jesus descends into hell and preaches to the spirits of those sinners who perished into hell and preaches to the spirits of those who perished in the flood at the time of noah so there's there's a group that says well what he does is these guys all died in the judgment waters and so he's preaching to those spirits that that refused to listen to noah while for 120 years my man was building a boat And they refused to listen, and so he he descends and he preaches to them. The second camp is that Christ, through the Spirit, preached to the people who were alive in Noah's day. That is, Christ didn't come incarnate, he didn't come in the flesh to the people in Noah's day, but he preached through the Spirit, through Noah, as Noah was preparing and Noah was talking, that he preaches in that day. And so through the Spirit, he preached to the people who were alive in Noah's day, subsequently they died and they faced judgment they're now in prison as it were in hell though they were not in hell when jesus preached to them while they were alive and noah's dead this is this is what augustine was famous for believing origin believed the first one the third view is another view says that the spirits in prison are fallen angels not human beings and what jesus does according to the passage is descend into hell to preach to these fallen angelic spirits the fallen angels in order to declare his victory and their doom so he doesn't he doesn't go to liberate them it's a vindication of his reign and his rule uh, i think that the the best answer is either 2 or 3 i think those are the best answers that christ either preached through noah while it was occurring just as he preaches his spirit preaches through all of his people who will preach today the word I think that's, that's one way of, of seeing that. And then the other, because of the use of the word spirits here, that, that he goes and he proclaims, obviously, his victory, that on the cross, it was finished. On the cross, it was sufficient, and he reigns. And so either way, it is about vindication. You don't have to be definite here to get what Peter is saying, that he goes and he preaches vindication as a, as a part of this and that he reigns, that there's victory. So he suffered, but he reigns. And so it goes on then, verse 21, to say, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, only people who are happy about this text is Church of Christ, folks. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So... Peter is saying, look, in a hostile world, display Jesus, because if you suffer, you won't be the first one. Jesus actually suffered, but he was vindicated. And then Noah, after all those days of hammering and hammering and hammering, he was vindicated as well, after all the mocking and all that went on, that that he was delivered through those waters. My guess is that when you and I watch baptisms, I wonder how many of us view the water as judgment, versus cleansing i wonder if if we more when we see baptisms we think of naaman who was cleansed of his leprosy in the old testament by by going down in that water and, and we see the waters a cleansing and a washing and a renewal what peter is saying clearly baptism doesn't save you because it washes your dirt off he says that very clearly in the text so it's not a ritual that that is saving you there the, the picture and the connecting with noah is that all around noah were these waters of judgment but he and his family were delivered safely through the ark that was there and in the same way our baptism those waters aren't just pictures of cleansing they're pictures of judgment that in judgment we deserve to die but in Christ we are raised up and delivered from the judgment waters and set free to live for Christ and so the point is not just that ritual saves us. It's a picture of God's rescue of repentant sinners from the floodwaters. And so what Peter is saying is Jesus was vindicated. Noah was vindicated. You and I will be vindicated if we look to Christ and trust in Christ. And even if we suffer for the cause of Christ. Why? These are the last verses and they're most important. Because if these aren't here, none of the rest of It matters. He says at the end of verse 21 that we have an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So here's what matters. If there is no resurrection to Christ and there is no reign to Christ, now the rest of that even matters. It doesn't matter. But his point is that through this that through what Christ has done, we can appeal to God for a clear conscience. Schreiner has written, it says it best. He says, just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death. And believers at baptism ask God on the basis of the death and resurrection of Christ to cleanse their consciences and forgive their sins. Christ's resurrection and his reign will never be thwarted, And we know that because he says all these other powers, angels, authorities, powers, they've all been subjected to him and they will always be subjected to him because Christ is alive and he reigns over all. So what Peter is writing in an interesting way in all of the text, he says, I know you guys are spread out. Whoever's in the area with you together, you guys got to live harmoniously together. You got to be united and the way that that happens is that you're tender with one another you're compassionate that you care and there's humility that you're counting the needs of others more important as your own because when you scatter in that area they're going to revile you and they're going to do evil to you but that's not the path for you you have to help each other turn from evil you have to not let each other even speak evil because that's been the plan all along because god God turns his back. He's against those who do evil. So that's not how we operate. So even if you do all that's right and you turn from evil and you suffer for it, you're blessed. Because Christ is Lord. So be prepared when someone says, why would you do this? Why would you suffer in this way? Why don't you just go along with this? Be prepared to give the answer, Christ. Christ is why. And Christ is all. And he says, and when you do that, you need to know no one is more equipped to help you suffer well for his name's sake than the one who suffered for your sake. That he suffered once because it was sufficient. He doesn't have to do it again. And afterward, vindicated. His resurrection is the vindication of that. And there have been others, one of whom even Noah is a picture of being, following, went all around him, the inclination of every man's heart was to do evil. And here's Noah hammering away for righteousness' sake. Christ was vindicated. Noah was vindicated. And through Christ's resurrection, you can appeal to God for a clean conscience. And he reigns. And so if your obedience costs you your life, you will exhale here. But you will rise vindicated. With Jesus. A couple questions that I would ask then in response to this text for us to consider. What do you think it will take for you and I to embrace Peter and Jesus' view of suffering? Part of a job of every shepherd is to equip his people to suffer well. But we can't do that if we think that suffering is not a part of Christianity. There are branches, I don't even want to say branches of Christianity because I'd I have doubts about that. But there are people who teach that if you're suffering, something is wrong. (laughs) Peter just blew all that out of the water and said, if you're suffering for the cause of Christ, that's right. That is the path to be on. So I wonder if we need to repent this morning because some of us may just want safe, easy, comfortable Christianity. I'm not going to lie. I do often. I want safe, easy, comfortable Christianity. I think some of us want blessings that come from other means than suffering. We'll take all the blessings you, you give us, Jesus, just not through suffering, just some other way. Question to you, how would your life, conduct, and words be different if you really did not fear people, but you really knew Christ as Lord? Do we need to repent this morning of not resting in the gospel, but we're shrinking back because we're not resting in the approval that comes from God and Jesus? What keeps you from sharing the hope you have? And let me just ask, let me just ask another question: When is the last time anyone asked you for the hope that you have? When is the last time anyone saw or heard something in you that made them ask a question to which the answer was Jesus? If that's not happening, we need to ask the Lord to show us why. Why can't people see Jesus in me? Why are they not asking me about Jesus? And then, when they do, are you ready? Do you know the gospel? Are you ready with the gospel? And some of us may still need to be baptized. There's a picture of that deliverance that comes only from Christ. Maybe you've never been baptized and you've never been delivered. There's certainly a a picture here that we appeal to God for a clean conscience. I won't go into why I would see this as as a great case for believer's baptism. But maybe you need to be baptized as a means of following through that you have been delivered by Christ I want to encourage you to do that if you haven't, let's pray Father thank you for your word I'm sorry that at times we instead of working towards unity in our faith family we work against it and often because of just selfishness we say harsh things to one another we don't want to sacrifice for one another and you're our only hope you're our only hope through this entire passage If left to our own flesh, we will actually work against each other. Somehow, we will even try to carve out our own kingdom in your kingdom, our own territory in what's clearly yours, bought by the blood of your Son Jesus. So, if we're lacking sympathy for other believers here in our midst, if we're not feeling tender affection toward them, I pray that you would help us. You're our only means of that, and that affection would then drive us to action on behalf of one another. Perhaps we're being reviled by those who are not in Christ perhaps evil is being spoken of us and perhaps they're even working evil toward us help us not to do the same your word says in Romans 12 that we are not to be overcome by evil but that we overcome evil with good and our only hope for that is Jesus because again in our flesh we just want vengeance we want retaliation we want justification and yet that's not what we've been called to We have been called that when others curse, we bless. And not with a a half attitude about that. But that we, we want that blessing for them. And that again comes only through your grace at work in our lives. So we beg, Father, for the measure of grace to live this text. That we would not speak evil. That we would not speak deceitfully. That we would turn from evil. That we would pursue peace because we do want the good days and the good life that comes from obedience for your eyes are on us and your ear is open to our prayers and that you are against those who do evil and father we would never want you to be against us we know clearly that you've been against christ because of all of our evil But i'm sorry for the times that we we still need to be disciplined Because we're not turning from evil. We're not turning to you. And so even if we do these things and we we don't repay evil with evil and then we still suffer for it, remind us that this is the path of blessing, that, that Christ is Lord and we can trust that, that he reigns and that we still need to be ready with the gospel to say, here's why I'm willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. So all over our world, even a single missionary woman who's abused by pagan and selfish males. All over our world, believers are suffering. Would you even in this moment empower them? Would you make your presence known to them? Would you grant every measure of grace they need to be obedient? And would you help this not to be the only time we pray for them and for each other. All of this is even possible because Christ suffered once. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to you. The very plan for us to be with you was through the path of suffering. May we not lose wonder, God, that you would want us brought to you. May we not be so convinced of our awesomeness that we can't see yours. You would want us, and at great cost, may Christ's sufferings, may our hearts never be cold to them, even to the point of death. But then, there was vindication, because he was your son. And so, however the preaching occurred, what we know is that it occurred, and that Christ is resurrected and he reigns. And just as you delivered Noah, you deliver us from the waters of judgment. We deserve to drown in them. We deserve to perish. But through the resurrection of Christ, we can appeal to you for a clear conscience, and you grant it. So indeed, what we're about to sing, we can say it's well with us. That it is well with our soul, because you have made our souls well. So, Father, if we find ourselves this week in difficulties because of obedience, may we say it's well. We entrust our souls to a faithful creator. If we are shrinking back because we are afraid, move us to repentance. If we are working against unity in this body, move us to repentance. If all we long for is safe and easy, comfortable Christianity, move us to repentance. And, Father, help us to live this text for opportunities to give a reason for the hope that we have. We don't suffer just for suffering's sake. Our suffering is a means for the advancement of the gospel. So Father, in whatever way you want to use us, may we be open. May we not just draw lines in the sand and and say, I don't want to go any further than this. May the cross crush every line we would ever draw. And may we just simply say, however you need to use me today and this week, here we are. Here we are. So Father, we need your grace if we're going to live this text. We pray for this now. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing these songs of response.